Well, thank you once again for the invitation to be with you today and to bring God's word to you. And may the Lord be pleased to bless us as we hear his word this morning and that we might all benefit from it. Also, I'd want to bring you the greetings of the Grace Baptist Church in Broadstairs. And just so that you are aware that uh, we uh, are united together, we pray for you. I'm sure you pray for us often enough. And it's a delight just to see the way in which God uh, is blessing the Grace Church as much as he's also <coughs> blessing the church here at Maidenbow. Now this morning we are going to be looking at John chapter 17 and it is of course the high priestly prayer of Christ but we are looking at verses 1 through to 5 of John chapter 17. Let me just read those words to you. John 17 from verse 1 to 5. Jesus spoke these words lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life. that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. It was the last sermon that I preached in the Baptist church on the island of St. Helena, and that was 1997. And it was a very poignant occasion because I preached on uh, Paul's farewell sermon to the Ephesian elders, as we find it in Acts chapter 20 and verses 17 onwards. But it was the Apostle Paul's words in verse 25, which made the occasion of my final sermon very serious indeed. For Paul writes then in verse 25, I know that you all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God will see my face no more. And that sermon concluded a nine-year ministry to a church that we came to love. And a few days later, we left the island by ship. But over the years that have passed, I have often pondered these words of the Apostle Paul. And certainly, what Paul said is biblically true. They're biblical words. They were meaningful to the Apostle Paul, and he wanted the Ephesian elders to know that. And that day when I preached that particular sermon on Acts chapter 20, well, that 25th verse was certainly very relevant and meaningful to me as well. Important words, you see, that we need to take note of. Now, you will no doubt, as we just 
go on with our thinking, you will no doubt recall the so-called burning bush incident that we, is recorded in Exodus chapter 3, where Moses was compelled to see for himself and to examine this very strange occurrence of a bush burning, but not burning itself out. And as he, that is, Moses approached that burning bush, so it was that God spoke to him. And the Lord said to him, Moses, take the sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Exodus 3, verses 5 and 6. Now, as we think back to John 17, verses 1 through to 5, it is very much the sense that these words of the Lord Jesus Christ in the company of his dear disciples are similar. As we read them, we are treading on holy ground, just as Moses was in the presence of the Lord long ago. And here is a delightful prayer, one that should grab your attention and mine, and one which truly makes us just see something into the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is like walking on so-called holy ground. It is like this because it makes us view the greatness of Christ's love. It makes us view, again, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. It makes us take into account afresh the, the magnificence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And for that reason, as we look at these few verses in John 17, we do well to listen carefully to what Jesus says in his prayer. <clears throat> now, first of all, this morning, let's look at a compelling request, a compelling request, and you'll find this in verses 1 and, uh, 1 and 5. It's the words, glorify your son, in verse 1, and glorify me, in verse 5. A compelling request. Now, the whole purpose of John's Gospel is to emphasise the divine and the human nature of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, so that those who hear Christ preached, the Christ crucified and risen again, may place their trust in him as the only saviour. What also makes John's gospel unique is the coverage of the events of the Passover meal at which Jesus and his disciples were present. And you find this, it all starts at least from John chapter 13 and ends here in John 17. Now, None of the other gospel writers record these things in such detail as does John. And here are the last words of Christ. And therefore what he prays here is of great importance, you see. And they reach their climax, as it were, all the teaching, all the words of Jesus from chapter 13 onwards until we come to chapter 17, 
These are what the Lord has taught his disciples. And John 17 is, as it were, the climax of it all, the high point of what he's been trying to teach his disciples in the hours when they celebrated that Passover meal. Here is the Lord's great high priestly prayer. Now, the Passover meal which they were celebrating was a constant reminder to the Jewish people in general of God's powerful and mighty deliverance of the nation from slavery in Egypt and how it was that when the first Passover meal was celebrated that the firstborn son of every, in every Jewish family would be spared because the blood from the lamb that they would eat that night would be placed, painted, brushed upon the doorposts of their homes. And that night, so it was that God spared every firstborn son of his people, the Israelites. Later on, in Exodus, God's people set free, expelled indeed from Egypt, delivered from slavery by God's great power. But here the Passover meal was a meal that Israel was to practice in perpetuity for the disciples in Jesus. Here was its appointed fulfillment, you see. The appointed fulfillment when Jesus became the sacrificial lamb of God for those who trust in him. For you who trust in him. For those of you who will yet trust in him. Not for nothing, John the Baptist says of Jesus, look or behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And yet Jesus is speaking so powerfully of himself. I don't think to yourself that the Lord Jesus Christ did not need to pray. As a man, he had to pray. He had to be in communion with his Father. Prayer was necessary for him in all that he did in his ministry and is equally so true for you, brothers and sisters in Christ. You cannot think to yourself that you can just rattle off a prayer in the morning and hope that the Lord would be with you and bless you. Here you're looking at something important. Christ opening up his heart to his disciples showing that he was a man of prayer who was concerned about them, who was concerned about the glory of his Father, and that he himself would be vindicated by his work on the cross. And as you and I would follow Jesus Christ, as we would be used of God within the church, what is the one thing that we need to do? Not just to be here, not just to read the word of God, very important, but as Jesus prayed, so you and I are also to give ourselves to this important matter of prayer. And you can only pray if you are a Christian, if you are a true child of God. If you're not a Christian, it's foreign to you. But my friend, when Christ has opened up your heart to him, it is the most natural thing in the world to want to speak to Jesus Christ, to call upon the name of your Father in heaven through Christ so you're looking at something truly wonderful here. Now in verses 1 through to 5, Jesus is addressing his father in prayer. 
And the prayer at the end of the Passover meal would have been, and this, is, this would have been true of all the <coughs> Passover meals that the Jewish people celebrated, but at the end of the Passover meal there would have been prayer made, but it was a prayer of praise to God as well as petition. And this would have been spoken by the head of the home, the father or the husband or the host, as it was on this occasion. And that prayer, then, that final prayer, would have included a benediction and it would have been accompanied by the singing of the psalms towards the end of the Psalter and of bringing uh, hymns of praise to God, you see. So it would have ended on a very high note. However, when Jesus prayed here, it wasn't just being praised to God, but he brought himself to God. He was saying in effect to his father, I have great need for the work that is to be done shortly in the next day, in the next few hours. I need your help. I need you to fill me with the Spirit. I need you to help me to persevere in the great work of the cross so that it might be brought to a, con to a grand and great conclusion, you see. So when Jesus prayed in the company of his disciples on that, at that Passover meal, his words that he prayed in verses 1 through to 5 must have arrested the attention of his disciples. Perhaps his disciples had never heard him pray like this ever before. But what he said here so grabbed their attention, to use that expression, that you find John later, much later, writing about these very things. Here is the prayer of Christ that he must write down, he must record to show us just um, how amazing was this prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, what did Jesus request of his Father? What was the prayer upon his heart? It was just that the Father should glorify him. Now, the life of the Lord Jesus Christ up to this point <coughs> was uh, one which did indeed glorify God. The whole of Christ's life brought glory to his Father, certainly. And why was it so? Because the Lord Jesus Christ was fully obedient to all of the will of his Father, our Lord Jesus Christ did not disobey at all. He didn't disobey his Father in his thoughts. He did not disobey his Father with the things that he said, and neither did he disobey his Father by his actions. Philippians chapter 2 and verses 5 through to 11 remind us that the Lord Jesus Christ set aside the glory he possessed with the Father and the Holy Spirit from eternity and humbled himself by becoming man, a sinless man. And so there's a double request that Jesus makes of his Father here when he says, glorify me, and is set in the strongest possible language in the original it's very strong indeed, and strong pronouns are used as well. And the repetition means here of this word glorify makes the request very emphatic. 
Jesus is not saying, Father, honor me. But he's looking at his father with the eyes of faith and he's saying, Oh God, oh Father, glorify me in the work that I'm about to do. Glorify me. Glorify your name. It is so emphatic. And to put it a little differently, what Jesus is saying there is, Father, glorify me now. Glorify me now. Now, why did Jesus make this request of his Father? Because in a few hours, he would be arrested, tried, humiliated, mocked, scourged, and then crucified on behalf of sinners. Sinners who would later trust him for his salvation. Sinners who today still trust the Saviour for his salvation. And the Lord Jesus Christ would die, this, that would die the sinner's death and bear sin and its penalty for them. Therefore Jesus was asking the Father to glorify him by the suffering and the death that he was about to face. So, so that the sight of Jesus Christ on the cross would not be a moment of triumph for the devil. On the other hand, that it should not be a moment of triumph for those who engineered the death of Jesus Christ, but rather, but rather that it should be a demonstration of the mercy and the kindness of Almighty God in bearing your sins and my sins through him. And Jesus requested that this so-called tragedy of the cross should be a moment of triumph and glory to God. And that's why when Jesus suffered on the cross, when he suffered, he did not wail. And why has this happened to me? He did not wail in agony, nor did he complain, <clears throat> and neither did he hurl insults at those who crucified him? He didn't do that because he was doing a work, a significant work on that cross that would bring deliverance to hell-bound sinners to set them free. That's why he did not murmur and did not complain. Did God the Father hear the prayer of his Son? Yes, Categorically, yes. And there was not a sweeter utterance from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross when he cried out, It is finished. It is finished. Not that his life had come to an end, but the work of redemption was fully completed. He paid all the, the full price of your sin and mine and all who make up God's people. What glorious words. Accomplished. Redemption fully accomplished. And because death could not hold the sinless Saviour, he rose from the dead the third day. And here is the triumphant and glorious Saviour who suffered in your place so that you, by believing in him, should have the full and permanent forgiveness of all your sins. Is it nothing that Jesus should suffer so for you, 
Surely it demands that you call on the Saviour today if you do not know him, that you come to him and ask for his forgiveness of your sins and ask him to make you a child of God. And surely, surely that little step of faith that you make towards the Saviour on your part is the very means whereby you glorify Christ. Little step, but oh, does it not bring great glory to our wonderful Saviour who did everything to set you and me free and to make us the children of God. Now, <clears throat> we look in the second place at the consummate, a consummate, consummate gift, as we have it in verses 2 and 4, a consummate gift. What does it say to us? You have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And then verse 4, you have given, I have finished the work that you have given me to do. The two words there, given. So the word consummate here means the ultimate, the highest or the greatest gift. Now the Father has given his Son, Jesus Christ, the authority over all flesh, that is, all mankind. And it's a simple statement that Jesus makes here. It's a statement of fact that follows on from his redemptive work on the cross. So in verse 4, Jesus speaks of completing the work the Father gave him to do. That's his redemptive work through active and passive obedience. But here, you gave, the words you gave, is a perfect tense, which means the action has been fully completed. And thus the work of Jesus Christ on the cross is complete, and nothing needs ever to be added to it, nor does it need any enhancing nor does it need any improvement either. It's a completed work. Jesus has completed the work that his Father gave him to do. But in verse 2 there is another perfect tense, and it is that the Father, uh, and it is that the Father has given to his Son all those who will be saved from sin and redeemed. And so it is that every single person upon whom God has set his love and grace have been given to the Son, have been given to Jesus Christ. It means that every one of these for whom Christ died will come to him, will repent of their sins, will be made a child of God. They've been given as a gift to Christ. That's the reason why he died as well. It is thus the joy of the Saviour. Did you hear me? The joy of the Saviour to give eternal life then to those for whom he died. It is a gift that cannot be annulled. It cannot be altered. It cannot be rescinded. And certainly every true Christian Every one of us here who know Christ know the struggle with remaining sin in our lives 
and many other times when we know our utter unworthiness because of what we've done as we struggle with sin and yet make every attempt to live for the glory of God. Sometimes we do feel so unworthy. Yet remember the words of Jesus in John chapter 10 and verse 28, words of great assurance, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. It means that you are given to Christ and you come to faith and nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of God which is in Jesus Christ. That's a consummate gift. It's the highest gift. It's the greatest gift that God can give you. But why then is this the greatest gift? Because Jesus says that, it, that eternal life which he gives is knowing the only and true God. I'm very sure of this, that those of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ, that we've read our Bibles cover to cover over many years. It's our habit to read it. We do it because it's food for our souls. And perhaps some of you can say, I've read through the Bible 20 times or even more. Perhaps you've just read through it once or twice. It doesn't matter. But the question we ask ourselves is, do we know everything about God's word? Do you? I don't. Neither do you. What am I getting at here? The truth is that often when you read God's word, we are surprised to discover things that we simply had not seen before. And it makes us marvel again. And it often allows us to understand better the redemptive work of our Saviour, his love for us. It allows us better to see new vistas or horizons of God's character and nature. It's amazing. God's word is not a dead book. It lives. And, oh, my friend, it's a delight to come under the sound of the preaching of God's word, to read God's word for oneself. And God opens our dull eyes to see things that are amazing about himself and his son. Now, some of us have been married for years and been married for a long time. And we know our spouses very well. And perhaps especially when it's 25 years or 30, 40, 50 or even more. We know our husbands, we know our wives, you see. But when a wife or husband goes through some or other trial, you may discover in your spouse areas of strength and character <clears throat> that you didn't know of before. So they're going through the trial and as they submit to God's will, you see is the strength of character, Christ-like character, just shining out, giving glory to God. That's a delightful thing, is it not? It will be no different when finally we are with the Lord. And when we are with Christ in glory, we will keep on learning about our Father 
we will keep on learning about our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. We will keep on learning about the work of God, the Holy Spirit as well. Do not think of eternal life as something like unending drudgery and boredom. No, it cannot be like that. But it's just discovering more and more and more about the God of your salvation. And every new day, as it were, there will be fresh insights, things that will fill you with delight. And with this will be the privilege of being perfect in heaven with Christ, without sin, and have, being able to have delightful, unhindered communion with our God. Now, some years ago, <coughs> I think it was four or five years ago now, <coughs> my wife mentioned something very important to me. Before, mar before marriage, we would often visit each other and then we would go our separate ways to our respective homes. But after we married, she made the observation that we were always together, that there was no more separation. We were family, we were home, if you like. We would never be separated. To an absolutely infinite degree, that is what it will be like to know the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, and our Father in the glory of heaven. We'll get to know him better. Never parted. Nothing to separate. Nothing to interfere. No one else to butt in, as it were but enraptured with Christ, enraptured with our Father. And so the very pertinent question I ask you is this, do you have this precious gift that Christ gained for you at such great cost? Do you have it? You must take it. If you don't have it, ask God to soften your heart, to make you sensitive Pray that he would rescue you from your sins. Take that step of faith. But then, in the third place, we look at a culminating truth. A culminating truth, and that's in verses 1 and 4. Notice what Jesus says in verse 1. Father, the hour has come. Father, the hour has come. And then verse 4. I have finished the work you gave me, which is at least which you have given me to do. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. Now in verse 1, the words, uh, it has come, is a perfect tense in the original. And it means a completed, a finished, or a settled state. And simply put, Jesus speaks of his work as being Finished. There was nothing further to do except, except the work of the cross. And then as we go on to verse 4, there is the word finishing. And that word means coming, reaching a conclusion, reaching the end. And the very reason why the Son of God became the Son of Man 
was about to reach its conclusion by the suffering of the cross, by his redemptive work. And suffering and death were the very real experience after that Passover meal. The very next day, Jesus Christ would pay the price for your salvation. The very next day. But they would be days that would be followed by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Later it would follow that Jesus would be ascended, would ascend to the Father and he would be glorified with the Father. So there's suffering and death of the cross. There's resurrection from the dead, returning to the Father and the Father glorifying his Son in his redemptive work being completed. You also find here that there is this longing of Christ to enjoy all the full glory and communion that he always had with the Father. Look at what verse 5 says. Glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And the culminating truth was that Christ had perfectly completed all, all that the Father had commissioned him to do. The way back to heaven, the way to that place of splendor at the right hand of the majesty on high was about to follow. Christ would be glorified, you see. He had completed the work that the Father had entrusted to him. At the transfiguration of Christ, you have three disciples, that is Peter, James and John, who went with the Lord up on a high mountain. And in a moment of time, everything was stripped away and they saw the glory of their master. They, he was transfigured in the sight of his disciples. They saw Christ with that shining, radiant glory for just a few minutes and they were absolutely astonished at what they saw. Unforgettable. In Acts chapter 7 and verse 54, there is a further record of this outstanding glory. It was the occasion of Stephen's martyrdom. And as he was being stoned, Stephen looked up to heaven. He raised his head, you see, he gazed into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. It was given to him to see the glory of his Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Ah, oh, but we must also think of the Apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus, who was on the way to Damascus to persecute the Christians, the believers, in that town or that city. And as he approaches the city, he stopped in his tracks and he is surrounded by the glory of Jesus Christ. Acts 9.3 Suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. 
Now, here are some examples of what I'm trying to get across to you here. Examples of dazzling glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here, then, is the hope you have, believer. Your sins are forgiven by faith in Jesus Christ, and you have been given the imputed righteousness that Jesus Christ has given to you. But when we are taken into the presence of the Father and of Jesus Christ, you and I who are believers will be in a state of righteousness, glory that never will fade away, that will never lessen. We will be in the company of our glorious and majestic triune God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And the prayer then that Jesus prayed to his Father has been answered. It's answered through Christ's redemptive work and the glory that he received from that work. <clears throat> and as a child of God here this morning, through faith in Jesus Christ, you share all the benefits and blessings that he has won. Yes, we have it in this life. But when this life ends or Christ returns, there is an ocean fullness, so to speak, that we cannot imagine of the glory and the wonder that is ours of being in his wonderful presence. That's, that's the blessing that lies ahead. And here is something of the great truth, you see. But did I not say to you, in verses 1 and 4, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your name. And then, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory I had with you before the world was. I'm sorry, verse 4, I have finished the work which you have given me to do. I have finished the work that you've given me to do. It's completed. Think about the Apostle Paul, 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 7. <clears throat> he doesn't have many more days to live. And what does he write to Timothy as he anticipates a martyr's death? He says this, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Jesus kept the faith, so to speak. He obeyed all his Father's will, went to the cross and died for you, so that you should receive the forgiveness of sin and right standing with the Father and all the blessings and benefits. When what is your response as a Christian man or woman, young person here this morning? Surely it must be the cry of your heart, your prayer. Lord, help me to persevere till the end. Help me to fight the good fight and to finish the race. Jesus did it. The Apostle Paul did it. Countless numbers of Christians have done it. They've died believing in Jesus. And that's your calling. 
Will you not rise to the occasion, as it were, and say, Lord, give me your strength, no matter what happens to me in this life, no matter the temptations that should come to me, no matter what the struggles are, thank you for all that you've done and the place you've gone to prepare for me. Help me to finish the work that you have entrusted to me. Help me to keep the faith. May God give you and I the strength to do that for the glory of his name.